Welcome to the Baseline Community Church Podcast. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Good morning, everybody online, or if you watch this throughout the week sometime. um, Good, it's great to have you here today. So um, I wasn't here last Sunday. I was actually up in Seattle and uh, spending some time up there. And then um, thank you to to Jeff Campbell-Smith, who preached last week and did a great job, as he always does. It was really, really good. But um, I was with a group of buddies, and uh, we were together for a golf tournament. It was just a gathering of of a bunch of guys to play golf together. And we've done this now for um, over 30 years. Um, Now, we've missed a bunch of years here and there, and we're now starting it up again. And this was the first time we'd ever traveled to someplace like Seattle, Tacoma area to play golf. But it was an incredible time. And on Tuesday... Um, I was uh, with a couple guys. I was with Jeff Carr and Esau Sagano, and we were about to play our second round of the day at the uh, Gold Mountain course, uh, Cascade course, and it was what's called a scramble. Now, those of you that play golf know that scramble is really good, because here's what happens in a scramble, just to let you know, is, and we're playing against other, the other, there's two other teams of three that we're playing against, and there actually was some money involved too, okay? So... But the thing about a scramble is you all hit your drive. And then, if your drive isn't so good, you get to go pick your ball up and move it to where the best drive of your team is. And then you all hit from there. And then if your second shot isn't so good, you go to pick up your ball and move it to where the best shot of your... And it's a team score, and you're playing together. And since I was the, definitely the worst golfer of the three, I love playing scramble with these guys. But we were just about to tee off. And Jeff, um, who is really great guy, really accomplished guy, he's actually in the process of, of uh, getting a new job somewhere, and he's applied to a bunch of places and all that. He looked at his phone. He said, oh, no. And I thought, oh, he heard about the job he really wanted and didn't get it. I said, is it about the job? He said, no. He said, 14, at that point, 14 elementary students and two teachers have just been shot in Texas. And it turns out, as we know, it was 19 elementary students and two teachers. And um, Esau, the other guy we were playing with, is a fourth grade teacher in Santa Barbara. So you can imagine all the emotions that are going on. Now, we still played our 18 holes and actually won, won the money, so um, all that. But it just changes things when things like that happen. And it is one of those oh-no moments. What is going on? So I'm flying back into town late Wednesday night, and I'm realizing, you know what? The message that I was going to bring today that we've been working on, that's the faith of uh, generosity, just doesn't fit. Prayed with Kyle on Thursday morning on Zoom, which just to let you know, that is still happening. It's, there's an email that goes out every week, and if anybody wants to join us, it's a really wonderful time. 20 minutes of just praying, but prayed with Kyle on Thursday morning, met with um, Ken later that afternoon. It was really clear, we have to talk about something different. And so today we're going to talk about what does faith look like in the midst of tragedy? What does it mean to be people of faith in the midst of tragedy? And to do that, we're going to be looking at John chapter 11. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there. A lot of the verses will be up behind me, but it's the death of Lazarus. And I was just thinking about this as I was getting ready. 
There are so many places in the scriptures where we could have gone because there are so many tragedies that happen in the midst of the Bible. One thing that the Bible does not do is the Bible does not candy coat what life looks like. It's very real, it's very raw, and, and today we'll see a really difficult time for folks. So uh, in, in John 11, Jesus and his disciples are about a day or two's journey away from a town called Bethany. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem, which is the main city of that area. And the event uh, starts out with a really simple statement. The first verse of chapter 11 says, a man named Lazarus was sick. And I thought about this. Our own tragedies typically start out with something like that a call from the doctor about a test we've taken, a, a late-night call from the retirement community that your parents are at, um, a news notification on your phone. It's a simple statement oftentimes that is either a personal tragedy that you will then deal with or something that has happened out there that you will know about. And, and Mary and Martha do what I think we are called to do as people of faith, and the first thing they do is they send word to Jesus when faced with tragedy. You see, Lazarus's two sisters are Mary and Martha, and they send word to Jesus, and they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. And so the first thing they do when faced with this tragedy of their brother being sick is they send word to Jesus. And we, as followers of Jesus, that's the thing we're called to do first. Whenever we're faced with tragedy, whenever we get a notification, whatever it might be, the first thing is to send word to Jesus to be people of prayer. The first thing. And as this works out, there's some beautiful statements in this because it says that, um, that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus and called each of them friends. And we've been talking here in the last few weeks about faith and saying that faith is trusting in the character and promises of God. And one of the really important character qualities of Jesus and one of the important promises we have to hold on to is the fact that he loves us and calls us his friends. Even when we're going through difficulties, that we can still hold on to that truth that we are loved by him and called his friend. Jesus says to his disciples that, hey, this sickness will not result in death, but will result in God being glorified. And yet he waits for two days. Gets news, your friend Lazarus is sick. Okay, we're just going to hang out here for two days. And that just brings up the question, why? Right? Isn't that the question we all have to deal with when we face tragedy? Is that why? Why did you wait in the midst of tragedy? The right question to ask is why? Why did this happen? Why is this happening to us? Why did that happen out there? You see, as God originally created this world, it, there would not be cancer. There would not be school shootings. There would not be divorce or assaults or wars but we live in a world that is broken. We actually live in a world that is a battlefield. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief 
comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That Jesus came that you and I might have the fullest life possible, the most abundant life, a fulfilling life. And yet there is an enemy, there is an enemy, and we call him Satan, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so those two are in battle with one another. There's a battle between good and evil. And we consistently have to ask ourselves, though, that same question, why? Lord, if you really are strong and powerful, and you really are loving, why don't you just step in and stop these things? Why don't you just stop, step in and heal that friend of mine? Why don't you do these things? And our world is set up in such a way, and again, I'm not God, and we're all grateful that we're not God, but it's set up in such a way that there is free will, that there are choices that people make that we all make, and there are consequences to those choices. And that the earth is the only place in the universe where God's will is not always done. It's the only place. And it's where we experience that battle and that difficulty and the tragedies of life. So after waiting two days, Jesus and his disciples make their way to Bethany and and Lazarus, they find out, has been dead already for four days. He must have died really quickly after the messengers were sent to Jesus by the sisters. And as Jesus approaches the town, Martha, one of the sisters, runs out and meets him before he even enters the town. And, and, and he fall, she falls before him and says, and says what a lot of us would probably say in, in times of tragedy, if only you had been here. If only you had been here, Jesus, my brother would still be alive. If only you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And even in her grief, she still believes in and trusts in who Jesus is. And they have a bit of a conversation. And then in John chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus says this to her. Your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus says this incredible statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. And so one of the things that we can hold on to and Jesus brings it, and Martha brings it up, they both bring it up here, is that the hope of the resurrection in the future and now. That that is what we can hold on to in the midst of tragedy is that yes, one day, and that's what Martha said, one day at the end of the age her brother will rise and Jesus, when he makes everything right, and he agrees with this. He says, you're, he doesn't say, no, Martha, don't, that's not what you should be thinking. But yes, someday everything will be made right. Someday there will be a time where there is no tears, there's no war, there's no cancer, there's no pain, all that. That someday, and that is what we can look forward to. But Jesus also says that he is the resurrection and the life now. 
that, that he can bring redemption in the midst of the tragedies that we face. That yes, it'll happen someday in the future, finally, but he can, even now, because he's the resurrection and the life today for you and I, bring redemption into what we experience. And as the church, we are called to be instruments of redemption. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul writes this. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And again, when we think about the character of God, there it is right there, that this, he is the God of compassion and comfort, that in our troubles, he gives uh, that to us so that we then can give that to others. And that as the church, we are called to be people who bring comfort and compassion to other people. Now, you may have heard about this, and this is just, I don't know what to do with this. The tragedy upon, compounded on this tragedy that happened in Texas, was that um, a man named Joe Garcia, whose wife, Irma, was killed in she was a fourth grade teacher. She was killed on Tuesday. Thursday, he is going to help set up for a memorial. He has a heart attack and dies. And so they have four children. I just found out today from age 23 down to 13, and they are now orphaned. And I saw a picture as I was looking at all the news reports of these four children. And they went to church that they went to their Catholic church for a memorial service. And the picture I saw, and this is the picture that I think we as a church need to hold on, is that their priest just hugged them. Just grabbed them and hugged them. And a lot of times, that's about all we can do in the midst of tragedy, is hold on to each other. But that priest was doing exactly what he needed to do at that time. Because the church needs to be a place where people can experience comfort and care in the midst of tragedy. And sometimes it's, it's just to hug them. Now the other thing I saw, and this is the other side of this, is that in a GoFundMe page was set up for these two, four kids, and over $2.5 million has been raised. And that is what the church is called to do too. Yes, be there to hold people when they need it, but to provide for those that are in great need. And that's what I believe it means. I think it means to be the resurrection now for people, to bring hope and redemption. So Jesus has this conversation with Martha. And then her sister Mary comes running up, and Jesus has a very similar conversation with Mary and says, uh, well, let's, uh, let's take me to the grave of Lazarus. And then in verse 33, it says this, 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and troubled, and moved in spirit and troubled. And, and I was looking at those words and looking at some commentaries, and it, and it says that the words could actually mean that Jesus was angry. He was angry. And he was angry with the broken world that we live in where two sisters have to mourn the death of their brother. I believe that Jesus is angry at a war in Ukraine where millions are being displaced. I think Jesus is angry when a gunman goes into an elementary school and shoots 19 kids. I think Jesus is angry when a shooter goes into a supermarket and shoots 10 people. I think Jesus is angry when a shooter goes into a church in Irvine and shoots. I think there's a lot that Jesus can be angry about these days. He's angry because it's not how it's supposed to be. And then we get to verse 35. The shortest and maybe most powerful verse in Scripture. Jesus wept. <laughs> Jesus wept. Because what that means is we know that Jesus is the Son of God, that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And so when Jesus is weeping, it means that God weeps with us. You see, you see, the Greek gods were emotionally not involved with the people. And this one little verse shows us that God is emotionally involved with you and I. That when we struggle, he struggles with us. When we weep, he weeps with us. That God feels our pain. God feels our pain. And that's why we can go to him when we face tragedy and heartache and all that. We, he feels our pain. He understands it. He knows it. He then asks for the stone to be rolled away. <laughs> because yes, there will be a resurrection someday, but he wants to help bring healing today. You see, in, in John chapter 1, uh, verses 4 and 5, John writes this about Jesus. He says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Your scriptures might say that the light darkness has not understood it, but I like this translation that has not overcome it because it feels at times like the darkness is overcoming the light. But the truth of what we read in Scripture is that the light overcomes darkness. And that's what Jesus wants to do. Jesus has called us as the church, Jesus has called us as followers of Jesus to be light in the midst of darkness. We should be the first responders to any tragedy. We must be a place of comfort for those that are in pain and be light in the midst of darkness. That's what it means to be people of faith in a time of tragedy. 
but it can't stop there. So we as followers of Jesus need to be agents of change. In the midst of a world that is very dark, in the midst of a world that's very hard and there is lots of tragedy around us, we cannot just sit back. We can be people that comfort and care, but we have to be agents of change in this world. And I have a few ideas on that. The first is this. Strengthen, encourage, and heal families. You see, God created the institution of the family to be the primary place where the development of young, little human beings then become individuals who flourish personally and contribute to the good of the world. It was God's idea to bring a man and a woman together and to bring, have a family. And yet our culture and our world has been breaking families up and destroying families and saying families aren't important. And I want to just go back to Scripture and say families are important. So those of us who are parents or grandparents or brothers and sisters or daughters, make your family a priority. Do everything you can to create a place where everyone in your family has an opportunity to grow and flourish and to become all that God created them to be. And then the church must be a resource to the greater community to help families flourish, especially those families that are in under-resourced areas. We must come alongside our communities and help them see the importance of families, to strengthen those families, to heal those families, and to create families where people grow up to flourish. It begins with the family. Secondly, the church must be those, we must be those, who help the outcast find a place to belong. So a lot of times in church, over the course of the last 50 years, it's been this. It's been, believe what we teach you, behave like we want you to behave, and then you will belong with us. And I want to say the church needs to mess that all up and say, you belong here, first and foremost. No matter how messed up you are, no matter how much of an outcast you feel like, no matter what you feel, you belong here at this church. And then you can believe over time and you can behave, but you belong here. Our arms are open wide for you, especially, especially for those who are in junior high, high school, and young adults. You belong here and you are a part of us. We need to see ourselves as what I would call a family of families, which is families and singles and young marrieds and widowed and divorced, who, those who are found and those who are lost, those who are in, those who are out, that everybody has a place in a church where they know they belong, they are loved, they are cared for, and they can say, I belong there. That's what we need to be as the church. 
There are so many kids out there who are struggling with who they are and don't feel like they belong anywhere. They feel like they're outcast. They feel like they've been bullied. And we see what happens when that continues. So let's be a place where everyone, especially the outcast, can belong. And then the other thing I would say is this, is that we, as followers of Jesus, need to be people who speak words of blessing in the world of cursing. That so much of the world tries to tear people down, that we have to be those that build one another up. Project, this is what blessing is. Blessing is that we project good into the lives of those we meet and know. We project good into them. One of the great blessings that we used to say all the time when we'd let the kids go was this, from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And what would it be like if in your families or in your, your acquaintances or just people you're walking by that that was what was on your heart and soul as you passed them? Lord, may you bless this person. May your face shine upon them. May you turn their face towards them. May they experience your peace. May you be gracious to them, Lord. And then to live that out, to live that blessing out in their lives. All right. Hang with me on this one. There is a political side to this too. And I'm not going to get really into the weeds on this. But many Christians I've talked to in the, since this all happened have said the same thing. Maybe you've thought this. How is it possible for an 18-year-old kid to get an assault rifle? And I, I understand there's freedoms, and I don't want to take any more freedoms, but I just think that we have to pray that our government has great wisdom on how to solve this problem. What we have to do. And as Christians, I'm gonna, I might get fired for this, but here we go. As Christians, on the one hand, it's right to hope, pray, and work towards having the least number of abortions in our country as possible. We also have to hope, pray, and work towards the least number of people who are killed by gun violence. And how we as the church can do that, we need to be a part of that. We have to. So just as a reminder, as the church, we are to be people of blessing. We are to be a church where all are accepted and find a place of belonging. We are to strengthen and encourage and heal families. We are to be a place where those who experience tragedy can find comfort and care. We are to be the people of God who, when there is tragedy, we bring word to Jesus in prayer. And I believe that's what it means to be people of faith in the midst of tragedy. So to finish up today, I want us to pray together this prayer that I found this week. 
It's by a man named David Taylor. He's an associate professor at Fuller, lives in Texas. And in Christianity Today Online, he, he has um, 15 prayers for a violent world. And this is the prayer he wrote, a prayer after a mass shooting. So um, you can stay seated, but let's, um, let's pray this out loud together. And I'll try to do it slowly. Here we go. O Lord, you who abhor those who murder the innocent, be not deaf to our bitter cries, we pray, and do not abandon us to our pain this day. Hear our raging words of protest, O God of Jacob. Heed our groans for justice and meet us in this lowly and desperate place. Awake, Lord, rouse yourself. Deliver us from evil for your name's sake. We pray this so that we might witness your might to save and your power to heal. We pray this in the name of our fortress and refuge. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Baseline Community Church, please go to BaselineCC.com.